Can you hear that, shelf carers? The sounds of relaxation. The waves gently frolicking with the sand as the tide eternally ebbs and flows like so many metaphors. Or similes? Or yes, it's hard to think about grammar when one is at the beach. Okay, just kidding. I'm here at Booklist HQ in Chicago, where we have beaches, but they are way too cold to enjoy right now. But that does not mean that it's not time to start thinking about summer reading. More specifically, time to think about beach reads. Or, even more specifically, what we talk about when we talk about beach reads. Beach reads get a lot of coverage in popular media, and you know the kind of book I mean. It's usually women's fiction or a thriller. It's generally described as escapist or fluffy, and it's basically marketed as a vacation for the reader's brain. Now, don't get me wrong. Those lists are very useful to have, but there is no one-size-fits-all beach read, and you're welcome for me not making a bathing suit metaphor right there. Like all matters readers' advisory related, we need to dig a little deeper into what a patron is looking for in a beach read. We started the process in the April 1st issue of Booklist with a little column called To Beach Their Own. Come on, puns. But we're going to dig our toes a little deeper into the sand until we hit... What's what's under the sand? Is there anything under sand? Is it magma? Is magma under the sand? Do I need a vacation? Yes. And, by the way, I'm Susan McGuire, and this is Booklist Shelf Care, the podcast where we talk all things collection development, reader's advisory, reference, and anything book and library adjacent. And in this episode, we're going to the beach. First, I talked to Andy Paluzian from the New Orleans Public Library about vacation reads that take us further abroad, and she has some great title suggestions and ideas for promotion. Then I talked to Booklist's adult books editor Donna Seaman about how she engages with a book for fun and something she's reading and loving. But before we do that, Here's a real quick message. Get ready for July, aka Booklist's Graphic Novels and Libraries Month, which celebrates all the ways libraries have embraced graphic novels, while providing librarians with the tools they need to select, curate, and promote graphic titles for patrons of all ages. The program kicks off at the ALA's annual conference in Washington, D.C., June 20th to 25th, with author-illustrator panels and a meet-and-greet in the Booklist booth on the exhibit floor. Can't make it to ALA? Don't worry. Booklist's Blockbuster July issue, Spotlight on Graphic Novels, will include a 32-page supplement offering professional resources for librarians curating and promoting graphic novel and comics collections. That's just the start of a month chock-full of exciting offerings. Throughout July, follow along on Twitter with the hashtag ReadGraphic and join in the conversation about how important graphic novels and comics are to your community. That's Booklist's Graphic Novels and Libraries Month, and that's coming up in July. As promised, here's my conversation with Andy Paluzian from the New Orleans Public Library. She's a great book talker, and she has so much good stuff to share that I put a little break mid-interview-ish, sort of, sort of the middle, so y'all could take a breather. But even if you can't take a breather, please know that, as usual, all of the books we talk about in this episode will be listed in the show notes, which you can find at booklistonline.com slash shelf hyphen care. So here we go, Andy and me, and I'll just taper off. Okay. Hi, Andy. Hi, Susan. 
thank you so much for joining me today from beautiful, sunny New Orleans. Every day is a tropical paradise here, especially when you're expecting tornadoes. Tornadoes. I mean, we're inside, so I'm going to imagine it's sunny. Um, and that's going to be good enough for me. And because it suits the purposes of this conversation. It absolutely does. Uh, what did I say? I meant it is sunny and glorious outside. Perfect. Well, let's put on some sunscreen and a big hat. So, all right. Serious talk. Today, um, we are trying to get to the bottom of the idea of a beach read. And I think, uh, I'm not sure that the idea has necessarily changed, but I want to start thinking about it differently. So when you first hear that term, beach read, what what do you think of? I'm always worried about my narrow view of reading recommendation lists. Um, so caveat. But when I hear beach reads, I tend to think of uh, South Carolina Barrier Island. Yes, the low country. Absolutely. Or like uh, Cottage in the Hamptons for the summer. Mm-hmm. I think about contemporary fiction. I think about romance. Um, but when I am making a recommendation for someone who is going on a vacation or I'm doing a display, those, those aren't the things that I immediately pull from my memory. Do you have go-tos or, or do you think you just maybe are not, when you think of a beach read, you're thinking of those books with blue covers by <laughs> Ellen Hildebrand and Nancy Thayer and like books we love and books I review and enjoy and love. Wonderful books, but um, no, when I go for it, um, so my thinking with vacation is that, A, if you're taking a book with you, it's wonderful, you have this leisure time and you're using it to read, that gladdens my black little heart. Mm -hmm. um, but if you don't have time for a vacation, or you don't have the means for a vacation, beach reads, summer reads, those can all stand in for a vacation. So I lean on international fiction. Okay, I like that idea. Like, if you can't go to the beach, this book will bring the beach to you. Well, and maybe that's sort of what it traditionally is, but it, you're thinking more like if you can't go on vacation, we'll bring you a vacation. Absolutely. In convenient book form. Stamps, you know, go somewhere where you would otherwise want to get a passport stamp. Perfect. Without having to deal with, uh, oh yeah. Passports. Customs. The passport. Terrible pictures, terrible passport pictures. If you're really adventurous, you don't have to get any new immunizations. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, do you think that, like, was there something that uh, evolved or some something that changed your feeling about this? Or is this just something that, like, at the more you readers advised, the, <laughs> the more differently you started to think about that? Um, well, I did have sort of a different approach. So I have always been an advocate for international fiction. It's it's um, what has captured my attention. I mm -hmm. love about a new culture, a new place. Um, you know, if I read a book and I don't have to Google to find out if it's a bird or a shrub, I feel like I've let myself down. Okay, good. But that said, when you say international fiction, people sort of think of these uh, beautiful, contemplative, literary doorstops. And yeah. If you're talking to someone who's getting ready to board a cruise um, or who is taking a girlfriend's weekend and they want to take a beach read, a summer read, a vacation read with them, and you just spout out international fiction, you're going to lose them. You're going to see that glazed donut thing happen. So what I do instead is I talk about easy appeal fiction, page-turning mysteries, super spooky mm -hmm. thrillers, contemporary stories, but it's all going to be from another culture, another place. And where possible, I try to lean on things that are very funny or absurd, because yeah. I love ridiculous stories. If you are a master of absurdism, 
you are my bookmark author, the one I always go to. Awesome. And I think uh, with international fiction, also the idea of like a book being translated makes it seem like, oh, that must be heavy. Like if someone went to do all of that work, it must be of great literary import and therefore like maybe not fun, which is yeah. a mistake. They think like uh, Murakami, you know, like they think this right. is a book that I will tell everyone I've read, even though I've never finished it. Um, but it's not necessarily the portable title I want to take with me on vacation. And there are yeah. plenty that have been translated that are compact, that are mm-hmm. unbelievable, that are funny, that are totally relatable. Yeah, I like that approach because I think um, it it kind of gives a new meaning to escapism. Like you're literally leaving the country for this book. And um, I like that it can kind of open people's minds to the different, uh, the you know, like in American literature, we have a wide range and like, guess what? So does Sweden. <laughs> so yep. does Korea. Like, hey, what do you know? A couple of those things are doing, I mean, remarkable things with genre fiction, uh, Sweden in particular. So yeah, it's, it's so important to get everyone that has a particular genre or author that they love that is representative stateside and find that corollary somewhere else because it really does. It opens the world to them which is poetic and more high-minded than I meant this to be. Right. It opens the world to them, but like in a totally fun way, the way that a cruise or a vacation would. Yes. Perfect. So let's talk a little bit about some books. Yay. Um, So you, you had a couple of categories that you broke things down into that you just mentioned. Um, So why don't we just kind of go, go that way. The first one was, kind of mystery focused so what what are the characteristics of these international vacation read mysteries <laughs> international books of mystery we oh were out how to work on that for the signage for the book display but yes yeah. that, that's what we're talking about um you know i want books that when people bring them back to you they say oh my god i read this in a day mm-hmm. or couldn't put it down or i never saw that twist coming um or i slept with the lights on frankly yeah. <laughs> i want that really play up emotions that, you know, raise your heart rate, adrenalized fiction. Yeah. And that's funny because again, I think what we normally think of about beach reads is something relaxing, but that's not always what people want. Like you're already relaxing on vacation. Absolutely. I have uh, my best friend, in fact, can put down a mystery a day easy. And over the last 20 some odd years, we've hung out poolside many times and she's been reading the grittiest, bloodiest stuff there is. And that's all she really wants. And I know she's not alone. Yeah. All right. So what what you got for us? Okay. Um, I'm going to start with one that was just translated. It's actually being released later this summer. It's called The Chestnut Man by Sorensky Strip. Probably murdered that name, but, you know, he's murdering. It sounded him. good to me, but, you know, what do I know? This is in the style of, like, Stieg Larsen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a page-to-page heart attack. Uh, the edge of horror for some people that's going to be an obvious noob but for those like my friend who love to hang out by the pool palpitating over really adrenalized fiction this is an absolute winner it's got a nightmarish psychopath on the prowl it's got opposing detectives gruesome crime scenes and my favorite creepy little totems made of chestnuts and matchsticks oh i mean that sounds like um yo nesbo and that i only I'm too chicken to have read, but I remember the terrible movie 
that they made of the snowman and leaving little creepy things behind. Yes. Okay. So this, this particular author is very known as a David, uh, Danish TV showrunner and he wrote the screenplay for that terrible movie. Oh no. But his book, I swear is fantastic. It is the stuff of nightmares. It's got lots of twists. It's exactly what someone who loves a good thriller is going to be game for. We will forgive him his terrible screenplay because this book is so much better. Let's blame the director on the badness of that movie. (laughs) Who knows what he really wrote? (laughs) All right. So the chestnut man, anything anywhere else you want to take us? Um, I love bouncing around the country. Let's go to Australia. Um, I love Jane Harper. I know Mm -hmm. a lot of people are kind of being turned on to her. She's just come out with her third book in rapid succession. This one's called The Lost Man, and it is set in the outback in a very unforgiving place. Um, her settings, it's one of the two things I like to credit her for. Her settings are so good. I read this book, and I felt like I was thirsty and sunburned, and I was definitely on my couch in the air conditioning. Yeah. She can really make you feel like you are out in the middle of nowhere, you know, on the brink of your own end. Um, this one is actually more of a family drama i would say than her first two mysteries you know there is a whodunit and how did it happen you have two brothers right at the beginning who haven't seen each other in months meeting in this remote span that separates two different cattle ranches they're there to identify the body of the third brother uh the golden child has died inexplicably of exposure his car is found not too terribly far away in perfect working order full of supplies that could have saved his life and no one understands how he ended up in the middle of nowhere, basically dying of dehydration. I love it. I mean, is there a name for that kind of mystery where it's like all clues point to this should never have happened? Let's work on figuring out what the name should be until but, someone corrects us and tells us it already exists. Okay. Is that is that a thing, like what I just described? Well, you know, I was thinking about survival fiction, but this is like the opposite of survival fiction. Yes. It's like he should have survived fiction. Yes, he should have survived fiction. Let's go there. And I keep thinking about like movie correlations, but I think that that maybe um, speaks to the immersive like setting experience of reading the books. Yeah. Um, and I think that might be a good way to talk to people about them too. If you haven't read Jane Harper, her first two are amazing. The very first has actually already been optioned for a movie. It's going to star Eric Bana. It's called The Dry. Again, parched Australian outback. Yeah. In the height of um, a terrible drought, a very gruesome murder-suicide. So she she's great at hooking readers right from the beginning and then making them feel trapped by the environment. But in a fun way. No, I mean, but it's not fun, but no, I guess what's fun quote about unquote fun? You can't put it down. You have right. to. And we're not here to judge what you think is fun. We're here to enable it. Yes. Um, and, and you get to have these horrible experiences like you said, from your, the safety of your couch and the air conditioning. So that's the magic of reading. <laughs> okay, so you have a couple more mysteries. I, yes, I do. The Ruin. I love a day uh-huh. I like to shout it out for the ladies who are, you know, just kind of coming up in the publishing world. Uh, this one is from Dervla McTiernan. She is very reminiscent of Tana French, and I hope that's the kind of bump she wants. I mean, she's definitely getting that kind of buzz already. Mm-hmm. So this one is fantastic right from the start. It's another one that grabs you at the beginning. You have this suspicious death, 20 years in the rear view, that is prefaced. And then you jump into the 
the present day where a new body is dredged out of a river and everyone thinks it's suicide, but not everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, you know, it's, I would say like a gritty small town noir. I think that's how it's been described. And, and that's a, a very good description. This could have been set anywhere, but it was set in the less picturesque parts of Ireland. Yeah. And uh, this author, her prior career, before she made it big, yay her, um, she was a lawyer. So it's a fantastic piece procedural. If Mm -hmm. you're one that absolutely loves that style of writing, this is going to be your bag. Yeah. And I I like that um, it's sort of playing with the trope of like a small town cozy and just being like, guess what? Not cozy at all. Yes. A cozy where um, everybody's mobbed up, where it's full of consistency and betrayal and hard living and harder people you know your standard cozy and like there might be a knitting store but it's like haunted or <laughs> yeah there might be a knitting store but it's probably like a front for yes there you go operation <laughs> that style and Our... um, people who fall in love there is a second book that is forthcoming any minute now featuring the same detective okay good well, that I mean, that's always like music to a librarian's ears, <laughs> like series. So if you had to kind of make a connection, you know, in terms of like an appeal element or something, what would you, what thread would you use? Like tone maybe, or? I think this just... is tone, this is pacing, because these mm-hmm. are very tightly paced, you know? Yeah. They're going to be dark stories, they're going to be gritty stories, um, but they're going to be the kind of stories that you rocket through. Right. Lots of white space. Um, You know, the action is really threaded together very densely. Um, I love to say that I read for setting. I know that that's not always true because these books are representative of all different types of places. Um, They do a great description of place, though. Yeah. I mean, I think like strong sense of place in sort of a general way is a is something readers look for. Like they don't care where it is as long as they can be there when they're reading the book. Hi, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decimal Podcast. No, 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 wait. This is an ad for the Dewey Decimal Podcast. Join me and the Dewey Decimal Correspondents each month for conversations with authors, librarians, scholars, and more about topics from the library world and beyond. Past guests Sally Field, Bill Nye the Science Guy, Kwame Alexander, Margaret Atwood, Stephanie Powell-Watts, Viet Tan Nguyen, Brad Meltzer, Rick Steves, Ken Burns, Michael Eric Dyson, and many more have joined us to talk about everything from books and writing to library architecture and design. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Dewey Decibel Podcast. Thanks for listening. Did you have a good break? Great. So let's get back to it. Here's the second part of my conversation with Anna Paluzian from the New Orleans Public Library and some great suggestions for beach reading. So we've talked about the darkness. Let's like get a little bit of light. You said humor, but not like Carl Hyacin humor. No, not exactly. Um, when you think of humor, I, I tend to lean more on the absurd. You know, I want ridiculous situations. I want oddball characters. I want weird genre blend. Yeah. Um, you know, things that, that strike me as wacky. Where you read it, you love it. But when people ask you why you loved it, all you can say is wacky. 
I like weird is the word. Funny and weird. All right. So what funny and weird books do you have for us? I want to start with the absolutely weirdest, which I know you've read as well. Yes. Um, The Bus on Thursday by Shirley Barrett. I had a friend recommend this one to me. Um, She wasn't sure how to describe it. So she leaned on the marketing copy. I'm going to do the same thing. It is described as Bridget Jones meets The Exorcist. Yeah, I... I read that and, and I reviewed the book for Booklist and I don't like to steal the marketing copy for my review, but I really was like, well, that's right. I think I threw in a Shirley Jackson. Yeah, I think you could easily make a case for Shirley Jackson. You would just have to mix in Christopher Moore. Okay. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It had a great word salad um, for the for the jacket. It talked about it being funny and unsettling and poignant and weird. And I thought, yep, that's it. It's a blender of emotions and concepts. Uh, You've got this character sort of expatriating again to Australia, this time to a a remote town called Talbingo, where all sorts of creepy, bizarre things happen. Things literally go bump in the night. Um, It takes on topics that should not be funny at all, like breast cancer, and remarkably makes you laugh. Yes. I mean, yes, which I think can be very therapeutic. It can be. And that, I mean, there again, that's why we read. And then just when you think that this is, you know, Helen Fielding at her finest, we mix in the horror and it is genuine horror. It's very creepy. There are creepy horror ridden things that occur. I don't want to give away any spoilers, um, but I I mean, there's a lake and there's stuff that comes out of the lake. We'll just say. Yes. And there are lots and lots of locks on the door for all sorts of good reasons. Oh, and Um, creepy kids. Yes. Oh, creepy kids. That's like if you made a list of elements that spook you out, creepy kids would get me. Mm-hmm. And this was so entertaining. It's a very unique book, and I hate the word unique, but I had to lean on it um, because it is all of those things. It made me laugh out loud. It made me want to sleep with the lights on. Perfect. All right. Um, you're going to find a theme with me. Um, typical librarian cat lady. Uh, mm-hmm. Had to be cats disappeared from the world, which is actually a translation out of Japan. The author is... Genki Kawamura. Uh, this one, unlike Murakami or other things that may uh, be called to mind when you think of a Japanese translation, is extremely compact. If you have a very short flight, this is a great book to take with you. Nice. Uh, it is weird, but it's also weirdly affecting. It's a story about mortality. It will make you laugh. It will make you cry. Um, it's got all of the emotional pinpoints. So you have this unnamed middle-aged main character, a postman who is told by his doctor that he's going to die in about a week. You know, no big deal. Uh, still in shock, he goes home to his pet cat who is named Cabbage. I love that. My next oh. definitely be named Cabbage. And then, why not, the devil appears. Uh, the devil offers him a deal. He can live an extra day each time he allows the devil to remove an item from the world. Of course, of the devil's own choosing. So it's out there. You know, it's it's yeah. it, it's fantasy. Um but it is extremely funny. Uh, the writing is witty. The dialogue is very funny. Um, there's a lot of moments where you're meant to stop and think, ponder the moral of the story, I think. If you're the kind of person that reads for the moral of the story, you're going to enjoy this. A friend of mine called it Japanese Mitch Album in a good way. Okay. Yeah. Um, very sentimental. I mean, these last two sound like really kind of emotional They are. I lean on the humor and I realize that when I read these, I laughed out loud multiple times. But unlike French Exit or The Bus on Thursday, it wasn't just the humor. There was a lot. Yeah. 
to it as well. And I know, you know, people read for different things. We all um, have a certain emotion that we're hoping to dig up when we read a book. You know, some people right. want to be scared. They, they want to run for their lives. Other people want to fall in love or have really soul-satisfying moments of realization. And yeah. this is a very reflective book. It is sentimental, but, you know, the comedy is there as well. Um, you just might want a tissue handy. All right. Wipe it on your beach towel. Little yeah. tears. The next category, talk about the next category, because it seems to kind of encompass two different but related ideas. Yeah, this next category is like the colander. This is Andy running the steam on stratifying her ideas. I, I wanted to make sure that I did include things that felt contemporary or things that had a romantic core or things that would just be really discussable for your summer book groups, because I know we do sort of look for those titles as well when we consider summertime reading lists. Right. Okay, so we're going to start with the Lido, which kind of looks like the Lido, but I did look up the pronunciation. This is what happens when you read it first and don't catch any of the audio. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's by a newcomer. Her name's Libby Page. She'd actually gone to school to do fashion journalism. Big nice. So glad she went this route. Um, so the book is, like we were just talking about, an intergenerational story of friendship. Um, if you are a Friedrich Bachmann fan, Many, many readers are, this is going to be right up your alley. Uh, so you have a woman named Rosemary, who is an 86-year-old resident of a small London suburb. And everything about her town is changing. You know, the library she worked at is gone. The corner store she used to visit has become a craft cocktail bar. Um, you know, everything is kind of gentrifying around her. And now the outdoor pool that she has always visited is closing. So loneliness for her is sort of a familiar place she no longer recognizes. Oh. She is also, at this point in her life, a widow. So there's, there, there's plenty there for the reader to sympathize with. Um, enter into the story Kate, who is a young up-and-coming journalist, moved to this town for the first time. She knows absolutely no one. And she's not really taken seriously at her job. She's writing one, like, dead-end, forgettable story after another and is assigned to uh, cover the closing of the community pool, which I'm sure to her initially sounds like a snooze. Yeah, fluff piece or something. The worst kind of fluff piece, the fluff that no one is going to read. Yeah. So in the process of researching the pool so that she can write up her fluff piece, she meets Rosemary, and the two of them strike up conversation. There's sort of instant camaraderie. What comes from Kate's research is this story that is a portrait of a woman's life. And it kind of mirrors the experiences that Kate herself is yearning for. And you, you realize that she has a different kind of loneliness. She's a new person in a new city and a new career. So there are all of these relatable themes. It's a story of women. It's a story of friendship. Um, it's a very pleasant place to, to sit back and be nostalgic. It's absolutely um, a discussable book, too, for a summer book group. I think that this is one that a lot of people would really enjoy. I did throw in another one uh, by Bali Korjeswal, um, her new book that followed erotic stories for Punjabi women. This one is called The Unlikely Adventures of the Shergill Sisters. And this one is like a really great travel narrative with a lot of emotional baggage. <laughs> It's uh, the story of three sisters who have had to reconnect after having completely lost touch with one another as adults for the purposes of carrying out their mother's last wishes. She wanted oh. to have her ashes returned from the UK back to India where she was born. And she's coordinated stops along the way for the sisters. And it, 
it reminded me a little this is where i leave you which i know this is not a sort of like upper east side new england family no Uh, but still yes and it's also you know a little bit the joy luck club because you have family stories uh you know that dynamic between siblings uh, that quest to understand who your parents were or avoid becoming them Mm -hmm. it is a very universal story it absolutely translates and sisters and sisters i mean sisters is like a whole messy appeal element that i always enjoy delving into yeah (laughs) i think uh, delia efron would have had a field day with this yes Anybody who has siblings, regardless of where you are in the pecking order, the oldest, the middle, the younger, you're going to have a character that you identify with in this story. Uh, this is another one that I really see. You know, in my head, it's the Darjeeling Limited. It's a, it's a film already because there's a lot of really beautiful description of place. India is obviously a vibrant, colorful place, and I need a Bollywood director to take this on. Oh, it's- yeah. That would be fabulous. Um, so from a country that has a reputation for being vibrant and colorful to one that has a different reputation, should we say? Yes. I couldn't believe that in my quest to find a list of international fiction, I found one that ended up in North Korea. Yeah, where where we will not be vacationing. So this is the safest way to explore it, perhaps. Absolutely. If you are a real travel voyeur and you want to go to the most exotic of locales, this is as close as you're going to get to that one. Yeah. So you've got author uh, Jonas Jonasson, uh, who previously wrote a very hilarious book called The Hundred-Year-Old Man Who Climbed Out of a Window and Disappeared. I really oh, right. Yeah. I know that book. It's a great book. It is zany and hilarious. You have the uh, centenarian, uh, Alan Carlson, doing all sorts of kooky things after he turns 100 years old. So this new book is called The Accidental Further Adventures of the Hundred-Year-Old Man. And it starts with his 101st birthday party. And it's pretty much a belly laugh guaranteed sequel. It is interestingly a sequel the author did not plan to write, but he could not resist mixing the current political climate and, uh, you know, heads of state. Yeah. Alan Carlson's world. So Alan and his sidekick Julius have an ill-fated hot air balloon balloon ride that lands them in North Korea. Sure, as you do. Yes, featured in the book are parodies of Kim Jong-il or Kim Jong-un and uh, Angela Merkel. Donald Trump gets lampooned for having bad golf skills, which I thought was hilarious. Um, <laughs> if you're someone who really enjoys political satire, um, but maybe you want to go a little further than The Onion, this delivers in heaps. Um, it is very, very funny. It reads like a Monty Python script. It's just full of zany uh, situations and very unfamiliar places. Plus, you get to picture someone who is over 100 years old having these adventures and doing stuff. Well, yeah. yeah. Beautiful about that. I like it. So let's close it out with yeah. Austria. Yes. And I, I promised there would be at least, you know, some romantic sweetness. So this one is going to be our sweet note. Um, this one, by the way, was inspired by a true story, but I'll circle back. Okay. How to Fall in Love with a Man Who Lives in a Bush. Sure. If you haven't picked up on it, I really like long titles. Uh, this one is by Emmy Abramson. Um, Emmy, incidentally, was vacationing, traveling, trying to set up a new existence in Amsterdam at one point not so long ago. And she met a man, a very charismatic, attractive, hilarious man that she couldn't help but connect to, who was at the time homeless. 
and that person is now her husband. So this is sort all of right. civilization of their relationship, which, you know, that should inspire all the Oz. Yeah. Um, the main character here is a would-be novelist who's moved to Vienna to teach English to unemployed Austrians. You almost need a map to follow that thread. Uh, the main character is Swedish, too. So we've just got all of the countries in the mix. Uh, you know, she's somebody who's trying to write a novel, but every idea she has, alas, has already been taken. <laughs> she wants to find that original something, and that original something finds her in a park. She meets a handsome stranger who smells terrible, um, who seems to have everything in common with her. They're both cynics. They have the same sense of humor. You know, they, they have that same wanderlust that drags them from place to place. They just don't both sleep indoors. So it's a very different kind of sticking point. You know, if you love the will-they-won't-they they rom-coms, this is going to appeal to you very much. Mm -hmm. And and that it is uh, a happy, uh, happily ever after that we do expect when we read romance, but that it's paralleled by real life made it extra special for me. Yeah, and I like that um, he smells bad because I feel like that's one of the things in a romance novel is, you know, the hero always smells like sandalwood and masculinity so like yeah. i like upending that trope a little freshly roasted a, um, espresso and yeah very yeah shoe leather things like that yeah right. no this this is one that definitely doesn't try to frost over um a beautiful romance with details like that it's it's less flowery uh, less perfumed for sure but it's nonetheless very sweet. There's a lot of adorable dialogue and it's flirtatious. You know, you feel like you're flirting when you're reading the book, which is something I love. If I'm going to read a romance. I need it to romance me. And this one got me. Oh, that's really sweet. That's a sweet way to describe it. And I, yeah, it sounds like this would appeal to um, non-romance readers also. I think so. I, I am the kind of person that doesn't read as much romance, but I will watch romantic comedies left okay. and right. Yeah. And the main character in this story is actually a Netflix jump junkie. I totally, totally relate. <laughs> thinking, coming soon to Netflix while I was reading it. There's a, there it is again, that, <clears throat> that film connection with all these books. That's so, <laughs> Andy, this is amazing. You gave us so many things to think about and plus specific titles, which is always great. Do you have any kind of final thoughts or final advice for librarians who are trying to help their vacation read people without, they don't want to fall into that rut of blue cover women's fiction, I which, which again, we love, we love blue cover women's fiction. Yes. You know, the not for everyone. Maybe like in how you merchandise it, because I know a lot of the reader's advisory we do that is so effective is actually passive reader's advisory. Mm -hmm. It happens on a book display. It happens on a well-curated bookmark. Um, it might just be a sign that you have near the patron request pickup area. So when you're thinking about something like that, the passive RA component, I, I said today we're going to talk about international fiction, but that's not what I would bill it as if I were building a display or a sign or a bookmark. Right. I would about lightning fast, can't put down mysteries and spine tingling thrillers and crazy zany comedy of comedy of manners. You know, like I would, I would just caution people um, if you want to take this idea and run to really think about your adjectives and and the things that would draw us to similar fiction set in the United States. When you say international fiction, I think people assume that they're going to be reading something very literary. Right. And, uh, what we're trying to come across is that these are fun 
they're quick, they have the same appeal factors as the books you would typically pick up for yourself. They right. just take you somewhere different. I love that. And, you know, they'll take you on a trip, man. Yes. Get your passport stamped. Yes. Without, again, without bureaucracy. Well, Andy, thank you so much for talking to me about this stuff. And um, I hope you have many, many happy international books in your future. Thank you. You as well. This was a lot of fun. Hi, I'm Melissa Carr, Marketing Director of Booklist. Want to know more about that sweet spot where collection development and reader's advisory meet? Then join us at the corner, corner shelf that is. This free bi-monthly newsletter covers trends, ideas, and issues in these two areas, helping librarians find the common ground between them. You'll get original writing by and interviews with respected experts, as well as in-the-trenches looks at the new products and what's coming up. All of that in convenient newsletter form. Sign up for Corner Shelf at booklistonline.com backslash newsletters. See you on the corner, the corner of Reader's Advisory and Collection Development. One of the tricks about working at Booklist is that we get to read a lot of books. Fine, so you probably already knew that trick, but the fun part about that is that we get to read such a wide range of content and styles and just stuff that we get to sink our teeth into. Donna Seaman knows this better than most since she's the adult books editor. Also, she is rad, which you will hear momentarily in my conversation with her about how she reads and what she's reading now. Here we go. Hi, Donna. Hi, Sue. Thanks for joining me in uh, the exclusive studio called my office mm-hmm. yeah yeah so this episode i was i've been talking about beach reads and books that can help you relax and uh i thought while we introduce readers to a book lister you might also give us some insight into what you read when you're not so much when you're not at work because i feel like we're always reading for work but when it's your downtime Mm, downtime. Do you remember that? Not so well. (laughs) But I am usually very happy reading. Yeah. And I tend to read fairly intense things, as as you know. Yeah. Other people might have noticed. But but I find it exciting, and it it does put me in an altered state in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like we are in some ways like opposite readers in like what we enjoy. Um, I prefer to have no adrenaline running through my body when I'm reading. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think it's, I think that's great to, to have like the different perspectives. And I mean, what do you think it is about sort of intense literary fiction that, I mean, it doesn't hurt your brain, obviously. <laughs> Sometimes it hurts my brain. Hmm. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I guess it's a temperament thing. I read very hard, I kind of push. So I can't, I have a difficult time reading so-called leisurely reading because mm-hmm. I kind of push through it too much. I'm expecting too much resistance and yeah. I labor over it in an odd way. Now, I mean, I love magazines and, you know, other casual things, but when I'm reading a book, I just kind of want a really substantial, rich book. I look for that. I love the language. I like dimension. So, um, so I'm really happy reading things that other people find depressing or difficult. 
I love, I mean, I haven't really thought about that in those terms of like, I mean, it's almost like a physical act of reading. It is. It feels very physical to me. Yeah. And I guess I'm just so curious and I'm so concerned about so many things that I'm always hoping for enlightenment. Right. I'll read tough stuff. I love it. I mean, I guess that's why we talk about reading so we can find out things about people. Yes. Oh, I think so. Yeah. 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 And I'm, you know, willing to be challenged and surprised. And I sort of, you know, there's things I follow too. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not saying it can't be a downer or that I don't sometimes, you know, get upset about yeah. these things, but I'm always willing. Yeah. In a weird way. So what this says about me personally, I... No, listen, not. we're not here to judge. We're just <laughs> here to, to learn. Um, well, so when we were talking about what you and I would talk about today, I was like, what what would you bring to the beach? <laughs> what, or, you know, on a, a relaxing vacation. And so knowing that you are not someone who reads for relaxation. I'm kind of curious what, what you brought to talk about. Yeah, well, and I had to really think about this. Yeah. Plus, you know, you know, pragmatically, I wanted something that I'd read very recently, so mm-hmm. it was really fresh in my mind. Not that books I haven't read years ago don't come back to me very vividly, but you and I also talked about something that I'd recently reviewed that yeah. was coming out soon, because I'm hoping other people will share my curiosity. And yeah. I ended up picking a work of nonfiction that has many moving parts, that mm-hmm. I think would appeal to various things, including, which is unusual for me, a true crime element. Okay. True and, crime's super hot right now. Yes. And of course, we know why. I mean, it's just morbidly fascinating. Yeah. And this was um, a particular crime I knew nothing about, but the hook for this book is Harper Lee, whom I've been fascinated by, along with millions of others, mm-hmm. for many years. And, um, and she was, you know, there was a big... Bruhaha in 2015 when Ghost Set a Watchman magically appeared. Right. After decades of no publication, you know, Harper Lee was one of those one book wonders mm-hmm. like Ralph Allison. And, yeah, and uh, very deliberately. I mean, she well, like kept her stuff hidden, right? Well, we did, you know, there's much we don't know. There's oh. many theories about it. Um, in fact, there's a wonderful book by a former Chicago Tribune journalist named Mariah Mills, and her book is The Mockingbird Next Door. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that came out the year before Ghost Set a Watch. Right, I remember. And she hung out with Harper Lee and her older sister, who practiced law until she was like 100 or 103 or something. Yeah, Alice, I believe her name was. Um, so, so Harper Lee's, you know, completely intriguing to everyone that loves literature. And there were a couple of movies about her and how she helped Truman Capote mm-hmm. uh, work on In Cold Blood. So this book is called Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of Harper Lee. Oh. So I'm like, what the heck is this about? Yeah. And a brand new writer. So that's one of my other, I think, um, fun things. I like to try new writers because I tend to follow writers Mm -hmm. for a long time because I get really interested in their work. But I love to start with someone new. This is Casey Sepp. CEP, okay. Young Writers Done Written for New Yorker and other prestigious places. Um, so this book, The um, Trial, uh, is this real case in the 1970s in Alabama that Harper Lee was following, researched hugely, and intended to write her own true crime book about and never finished it. Oh. So there's 
like a bunch of biography in here about what happened to Harper Lee, but also Casey Sepp tells the crazy story of the Reverend Willie Maxwell. Oh my gosh, that name is ominous. Isn't it? It's, what is that movie? Uh, well, yeah. I'm not going to think of it, so I'll <laughs> cut this It's part just out. as macabre as you might be thinking. <clears throat> um, so this trial involved this Reverend Willie Maxwell, who had um, six people close to him, five relatives, die under extremely peculiar hmm. circumstances, okay. very strange deaths, and he, as it turned out, collected quite a bit of money on their life insurance policies. Oh, um, what which, an amazing coincidence. Isn't that something? So, um, so he had gotten away with this for a number of years. He had a very prominent attorney, this guy, um, Tom, oh, what's his name? Let's get it right. Radney. A rare... Oh, kind of like Boo Radley. Yeah, kind of like Boo Radley. Oh, oh my God. What? So okay. Tom Radley, who Harper Lee spoke with at length. So Tom Radley was a really interesting guy, very well-educated. Oh, this is all taking place in Alabama, mm-hmm. not too far from Harper Lee's hometown, like maybe 100 miles away, another very small Alabama town yeah. where the Reverend Maxwell and his poor, strange family who kept <laughs> dying mysteriously and, and young people dying. Um, so he had gotten away with that. Uh, Tom Radley had represented uh, Reverend Maxwell in various court cases. Mm-hmm. And then um, the, his, I think, niece, a young woman, she was only 16, died. But, of course, she had a nice life insurance policy on her. And it was at her funeral where another relative named Robert Burns jumped up and shot the Reverend Oh my Maxwell gosh. dead in the church during the service. Dang. Yeah. And so um, Tom Radney immediately acquired a new client right. <laughs> and decided to represent Mr. Burns. Um, and so Harper Lee found this as intriguing as who wouldn't find this intriguing? Yeah. Yes. And and there's many layers to the story too. Tom Radney's white, Willie Maxwell and his family are African American. So hmm. and lots Liberals. of um, so Casey Sepp's a great writer and she gives us a lot of deep background and I love that kind of writing about this particular part of Alabama, the landscape, the situation for sharecroppers, the poverty. Right. Yes. And all the racial um, components as well, which, of course, always interested Harper Lee. So we get a full portrait of the the bad reverend, who many people believe had voodoo powers or something. Oh. And Tom Radney himself, who was fascinating. And then she also gives us a, like a yet a new perspective on Harper Lee. Does, um, so you talked about In Cold Blood a little bit. Does mm-hmm. it touch on Truman Capote at all? Or? Yes. Their, okay. fr- their childhood friendship. Right. How they work together and the weird, sad end of their yeah. relationship. So one thing about true crime that I think a lot of people like is that it kind of reads like at a thriller pace. Mm-hmm. I Based on what you've told me, I mean, except for the part where the guy got shot at the funeral, which is amazing, it seems like this might be a little um, more, like, detailed. It's very detailed. So, and that might not appeal to everyone. Yeah. But for those of us that love tangents. Okay. And, like, I picture this book, it's sort of like a quilt of micro-histories. Yeah. So... Casey Sepp writes about a dam that got built that flooded all this farmland. Then she gives you, like, a little history of life insurance policies. Right. Like, really cool stuff. Yeah. And talks about the church 
the churches that the Reverend um, spoke at and gets into the lives of the people in his family. Like, you know, he worked, that was um, that part of Alabama, it had like a big logging industry for the paper, mm-hmm. paper manufacturing. So she talks about different jobs that people did and what, how hard those were and what they paid. Yeah. And so there's Probably a lot of not great. cool social history in here. Yeah. Yeah. I like that I like that description of a quilt of a book. Yeah, it's really like that. And she it's divided so that she focuses on the reverend first, the lawyer and the writer. And okay. So, you so kind you're can seeing kind it of, from different yeah. It's organized, but it's very organized. Very thoughtful. That's awesome. Well, I mean, you've made me curious about it. <laughs> so <laughs> That's a very even, nice. yeah. So maybe that will be my intense read for the summer. (laughs) Yeah, so a beach? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I can see people. One of the things that Andy and I were talking about, and I can refer to it because I know this story will go after we talk to Andy. Okay. We were talking about the beach read more being like kind of an immersive setting sort of thing. And it sounds like you're really in Alabama for the story. Exactly. You totally are. For better or worse. For better or worse. And, you know, she shifts back and forth in time, but it's mainly anchored to the 1970s, which is kind of an, you know, you don't really think about, I mean, when you think about the South, yeah. you think about the past. Right. You think about maybe the civil rights movement. Well, this is yeah, so this is like after, right after that. When everything was fixed? When everything that... was so not mm, fixed. Okay. Right? I keep forgetting. Um, and there's some political dimension in it, too. So, and the, you know, the people are so interesting. So, yeah. 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 Well, all right. So that's Furious Hours. By Casey Sepp. Casey Sepp. And when does that come out? May. May. May from Knopf. May from Knopf. Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Child of Harper Lee. All the fun stuff you want to read this summer. (laughs) Thank you, Donna. Thank you. I'm sure we'll talk to you again. Oh, good. I hope so. Okay. Well, that's it. We did it. Another episode of Bookless Shelf Care, the podcast, is in the proverbial can. Is that the expression? That doesn't... That doesn't sound like the expression. But I said it, and there is no possible way to go back and fix that. So we'll only go forward, boldly and relaxingly, into the worlds of collection development, reader's advisory, and reference. I, for one, am happy to be on this journey with you. This is Susan McGuire, signing off. Happy reading!